You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. The office of a priest, as we're looking at the catechism, it does go... In order, we've looked at the office of mediator. It's three offices. We looked at those in general. Last week, uh, Pastor Pinelon looked at the office of a prophet. So this week, we're looking at the priesthood of Christ. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the, the kingship. So the question is, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? And the answer that's given... Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. That second part is probably more neglected than it should be. Um, His earthly work on the cross, of course, is emphasized, but I don't think we appreciate the second part. So hopefully as we go through this, we will. As a priest, any priest is appointed by God to reconcile guilty sinners to himself. So there is this problem that needs to be overcome. And the priest is the go-between. And he's the one that God appoints to reconcile. Hebrews 5, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. So there we have something of a definition of a priest, or at least a high priest, appointed divinely to act on behalf of men, so he represents man, and he does so in relation to God. There is this go-between. And, of course, the high priest in the Old Testament typified and foreshadowed Jesus, who atones and intercedes for believers. He is the high priest, the ultimate, the supreme high priest. In Exodus 28, we have this, You shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod, and this is describing, in part, the work of the Old Testament high priest. Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So here we have the idea that the priest is representing the people of God in the presence of the king. He bears their names upon his shoulders, and he bears their names over his heart. All the Old Testament priests pointed forward to Christ in that they offered sacrifices, which foreshadowed him. Every sacrifice, literally hundreds of thousands of sacrifices, every single one of them pointed forward to Jesus. They were meant at that time to inform the faith of the Old Testament believer. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So the Old Testament high priest was there to typify Christ. We have the high priest. 
He is in heaven now interceding for us. As our high priest, he excelled every Old Testament priest in his person, in his office, and in his efficacy. Before I go on, any questions at this point? Priest in general? We okay? Okay. Good. So as to his person, Jesus is divine. And he's perfectly holy and pure. He excels all the Old Testament priests in his person. They all were mere men. And they died because of their own sin. So not only did they not have their priesthood permanently or perpetually, but they were sinful. We have a priest, a high priest, who is perfectly holy and pure. He is the true God and eternal life. Scripture is clear. It ascribes unto Christ the names, titles, attributes of worship that are proper to God only. He is divine. We have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's who our high priest is. He has gone into the holy, most holy place on behalf of his people. As to his office... He's not of the Levitical order, but he holds his priesthood permanently. Which is important because the Levitical priests and even the Aaronic priests, the Aaronic priests were the high priesthood, the Levitical priests were the ones that assisted, they died generation after generation. Jesus is a high priest forever. His ministry will never cease. And the only reason that you and I will be saved to the uttermost is because he will never cease interceding for us. That's how important that second part of the question is. Because he stands in the presence of God in our nature and as our head, and he declares his will to have that merit, he earned heaven, have that applied to you and me. That'll never stop. Thank God. He is first, by translation of his name, talking about Melchizedek, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about a mere man. How can he say there's no beginning of days or end of life? Well, because scripturally, there's no indication of who his parents are. There's no indication of when he was born, where he was born, or how he died. So scripturally, it's as if he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. This, this character, Melchizedek, just appears. We have no idea where he's from. And that's intentional. Because he is a figure, a foreshadowing of Jesus, who was from eternity. He's the Son of God, eternally. And that's... We're thankful for that because as our high priest, his priesthood is eternal. Another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. If you wanted to be a priest in the Old Testament, you better be a Levite. Just ask King Uzziah. He was king. And he tried to usurp the priestly function. He wanted to go into the temple and he wanted to offer incense. And what happened to him? He became a leper, as we'll see. You better be a Levite. By law, the priest had to descend from Aaron and Levi. 
So, but by the power of an indestructible life, that's Jesus, this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So God sets apart this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the priest after the order of Melchizedek. No beginning, no end, forever. As to his efficacy, he excels them in his person, his office, and his efficacy. He's able to propitiate God. Remember what that means. He assuages the anger of a holy God. And he expiates sin. He washes away the sin from the sinner. So his work deals with God and man. He propitiates God. He expiates sin by a single sacrifice. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Sanctification, remember, can mean set apart and progressively made more holy. So you and I as Christians are set apart. He has set us apart. He's consecrated us for himself by that single sacrifice. Person, office, efficacy. Any questions on that? His priesthood is incredible. As a matter of fact, one of my professors claims that Adam's primary function, remember Adam was prophet, priest, and king of the earth, is priestly. His first responsibility was priestly, to guard the sanctuary from any unholy intrusion. He failed, but that was his responsibility. Jesus fulfilled what he failed to do. When he died on the cross, we have symbolically mentioned in Revelation the idea that Satan was cast down out of heaven. Jesus cleansed and guarded the holy sanctuary. He cast out the unholy intruder by his death, and therefore he was victorious. It's a victory won by this precious blood of our Savior. He didn't encroach upon this, but was called to his priestly office, as Hebrews 5 points out. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. If anybody had the right and the authority to grab hold of an office, it was Jesus, and he didn't. I think it teaches us something about all the self-proclaimed prophets, apostles, ministers, whatever they call themselves today. You don't take this upon yourself. You're appointed by lawful authority, and God works through his church to raise up his officers in the church. The appointment was made by God because to encroach would be a heinous sin. And as I said, King Uzziah, I think he reigned 52 years. Um, But near the end of his reign, he tried to usurp the priestly privilege. He thought he was bigger than himself, and he became a leper. To the end of his life, he lived apart from the palace. His son had to be vicegerent. In order to be our high priest, Jesus had to meet, and he did meet, certain qualifications. He had to be holy. 
As Thomas Watson puts it, he knew sin in its weight, but not in the act. In other words, when he died on that cross, he bore the full weight of our sin. He felt that burden, that load of guilt of all the elect of all the ages. But he never knew it himself in the act. Never had a sinful thought. Never uttered a sinful word. Never committed a sinful deed. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He had to be faithful and merciful so that you and I could entrust our eternal destiny to his care. It would be certainly precarious to entrust our ultimate destiny to someone who is unfaithful. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He's merciful. He, he's been tempted in every way except without sin. He knows what it's like to face the indignities of this world and the assaults of the evil one. He knows what it's like. He's not unsympathetic to anything that we go through. And it had to be permanent so that his priestly intercession on our behalf would never end. He is able to save to the uttermost to eternity since he always lives to make intercession for them. Any questions on the call or qualifications? Yes, Caleb. Get my ignorance on this. Um, when this life is over and we no longer have our sin nature, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll be changed, made holy, perfectly holy in body and soul. But the idea is the only reason that God would continue his favor and grace to us is because Jesus continues to say, I declare my will to have my merit applied to Caleb. It's like the high priest bearing the name on the shoulder and the breast piece. On the shoulder because he supports you. On the breast piece, because his heart is for you. He wants you to be saved to the uttermost. So, thank God that he will keep his humanity for all eternity, and he'll keep interceding for you. Yeah. It's not ignorant. It's a great question. It's a really good question. Anybody else until we move on? Okay. Oh, John? Um, There's probably a really good answer for this, but... When Jesus, when God the Father said, There, begotten you. Another place that says, He's eternally begotten from the Father. Right. I'm assuming the begotten is in those sense meaning something different. Yeah, it's resurrection. When He's talking about today, I've begotten you, it's the idea that He, <clears throat> when God raised Him from the dead, He is declaring His will that Jesus is who He claimed to be, that He is the eternal Son of God and the God man, the mediator between the two. So, in that sense, this idea that as the mediator, you are exalted, you're risen as the Savior of the church. That's how most interpreters understand it, because you're right. He is eternally begotten, so there's no beginning, like today I've begotten you. But as the human mediator, as the redeemer of God's people, on that day, he was raised up, and that's when he accomplished our salvation. Yeah. Okay, So this work, his priestly office involves basically two parts, and they're pretty comprehensive. Satisfaction on the one hand, intercession on the other. We're going to look at both of those. 
He satisfied the law on earth, and he intercedes for us in heaven, mostly. Of course, we have John 17, his high priestly prayer, where he interceded for us while on earth. But most of his intercessory work is in heaven, in the presence of the Father. We're told that Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. There was a place on earth we can identify. You can go visit it. It's on earth where he satisfied divine justice. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is now in heaven bodily as our high priest with the Father, and he intercedes. So his satisfaction was on earth. His intercession is for the most part in heaven. And this satisfactory work involved both his active and his passive obedience. We've considered this before. It's always helpful to review it. His active obedience consisted in his fulfilling all righteousness. He was active. He was obeying the law. At his incarnation, he subjected himself to the law, which he perfectly fulfilled. Every detail, every jot and tittle. He did everything required in the law, both the Adamic law, the moral law, the covenant of works, and the Mosaic law, the law that God gave to Israel. Both of those, Jew and Gentile, he fulfilled the law perfectly. You see, the Jew is doubly cursed if he's not a believer. He's cursed because he's under Adam, and he's cursed because under Moses, he can't fulfill that law. So the Jew has an incredible privilege at the same time, incredible responsibility. The Gentiles cursed under the law of Adam. We didn't have the Mosaic law. So the act of obedience that Jesus performed, he obeyed every jot and tittle, and that is imputed to believers who are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When God sees you as a believer, he sees the robe of righteousness. Jesus Christ His passive obedience is so named because it was something done, well, people have debated this, but it was something done to him. He was crucified. Um, It's a little bit confusing because Jesus laid down his life. He had the authority to lay down his life. We understand that. So that's one of the reasons why we call it passive, simply because by the hands of wicked men, he was crucified. And he satisfied all the demands of justice. Justice demanded that in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. That's justice. No bending, no yielding. God shall surely not clear the guilty. Our guilt, which is heavy, was imputed to Christ, laid upon him, put into his account, and he suffered the full penalty that we deserve to suffer. God's wrath, therefore, was propitiated. Our sins were expiated by his precious blood. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. So, active obedience, the righteousness, passive obedience, the satisfaction of justice. It's as if Not just that you've escaped hell, you've gone to hell. Do you realize that? 
you've gone to hell, you've paid the penalty, you've paid the last farthing, and it's as if the jailer comes along and opens that big door and says, you're free to go. It's all paid. Your punishment's been exhausted. And that's the work of satisfaction. Active obedience, passive obedience, both of them equally important, equally necessary. Because if we just had the passive obedience, if justice was satisfied, we'd start off back where Adam was, right? But Adam, in his innocence, still had to obey the law. So we need the passive obedience to pay for our sins, and we need the active obedience of Christ to fulfill the law. We need both of them. If you don't have one or the other, there's no hope. Any questions on that part? Sue? Yes. Yeah. The, um, the Adamic law. So there was, remember the covenant of works that God came and he made Adam in his image. And as made in the image of God, Adam was required to obey the moral law. Ten commandments. And this is one of the things, well, wait a minute, Ten Commandments were in Exodus. Well, what it's showing is that a moral law is always in force, at all times, under all circumstances, in any condition. So if the moral law is moral in Exodus 20, it was moral in Genesis 1. So Adam was required to obey the moral law. This is the expression of God's holy nature and will. It never changes. So the moral law was in force at the beginning in Genesis, under Moses in Exodus, right now in our day. The moral law is still in force, right? So Adam was required to obey the moral law. This is God's holy nature and will. And he was required to obey that special uh, stipulation. You shall not eat of the tree. And the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. So that's the Adamic situation under which all of us are born. Yeah. And then the Mosaic law is specific to the Jews. Yep. Remember on Sinai, Mount Sinai, God brings them out of Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai, and says, okay, now I'm going to establish my covenant with you. And I'm going to make you my chosen nation. This covenant's based upon the moral law, but the moral law has all kinds of implications. And I'm going to set up a ceremonial law at the same time, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover, and judicial law. You're going to have kings. And these things made Israel a nation peculiar to God. And so they were required to obey the moral law as it was given to Adam, and the covenant as it was made through Moses. Added responsibility, you know? And since we're grafted, yeah, right? Yeah. So then, how does the Mosaic law apply to us? It's been fulfilled in Christ. Okay. So, oh, okay. yeah. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, I don't want to wrestle with bulls and goats, quite frankly. <laughs> You've been to hell in Jesus Christ. It's not just that you've been saved from hell. In Christ, you were condemned, you died, you suffered hell. 
In Christ, you rose from the dead, and in Christ, you're seated in the heavenly places. So in principle, you've done and been all of that in Christ. Right? My penalty, I deserve hell. I deserve to go to hell, even though in my worst moments, I don't think so because I justify myself, right? I deserve to go to hell. I've done it. It's done. And I've paid the last penny in Jesus Christ. If you're not in Jesus Christ, you'll spend eternity paying that last penny. Yeah. Because a finite creature can never pay it. Rob? Well, that's a good question, the significance of three days. And the only thing I can say, and I don't have a good answer for you, but on the fly, I'm thinking, okay, the Passover meal was Friday. The Saturday was the Sabbath. Sunday was the first day of the week. So that the new creation, the seventh day Sabbath pointed back to the first creation, and the new creation on the first day of the week is is, um, symbolically remembered in the Sunday. That's a fly on the fly. I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> I could be proven wrong on that. Believe me, I'm not going to be dogmatic on that. But. Okay, so satisfaction continued. He was both the high priest and the sacrifice. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So he is both priest and sacrifice. In Revelation we find the praise that's offered to him. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And that scroll and its seals presumably, according to some commentators, is the decree of God. Whatsoever comes to pass... You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So there we have the heavenly host praising him for his sacrifice. He offered himself once for his infinite dignity made his blood precious and sufficient. That blood is precious not because it's human, but because it's united to the divine person of the eternal Son. And it's sufficient. (laughs) One drop. One drop is enough to cleanse all of us. It was necessary because the curse must be executed either upon sinners or a substitute. One or the other. Either you're going to suffer or he suffers. Apart from the sacrifice of Christ, there is no satisfaction to justice, and the sinner must pay. Avenging justice cannot be satisfied, possibly by finite, sinful creatures who have insulted God's infinite majesty. You know, I don't think any of us uh, fully appreciate the insult that a creature offers to the infinite majesty of an eternal God. The least sin 
is worthy of eternal damnation. Even the least is worthy of that. But Christ voluntarily substituted himself in place of sinners so that our sins again were imputed to him. The doctrine of imputation is so critical to the idea of salvation. And you know the three imputations. Adam's sin is imputed to all of his posterity. You sinned in the garden. That's what that means. You're guilty for that eating of the tree. I'm guilty. His sins were imputed to us. Our sins were imputed to Christ. He's guilty because my sins are laid upon him. And his righteousness is imputed to me. I'm righteous because that righteousness is given to me. Adam to me, me to Christ, Christ to me. Isn't that marvelous? The three imputations. Rob? You knew I had a question. That's fine. Uh, so when, when Adam sinned, and, and this, is my, this is a long topic, but at least you can point me in the right direction to learn more. Adam sinned and all have sinned. All. And all are guilty. How come when, when Christ died, not all are saved, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's a good question. The covenant made with Adam was made with him as the head of the entire human race. The covenant that's made with Christ as the second Adam is made with him and all the elect. Why God did it that way, it's, I don't know. But we know that we have these two Adams. And they each represent their own constituencies, right? Adam represents the whole human race. The second Adam represents all the elect. And for reasons known only to him, God doesn't save every human being. This is the principle of election. It's sovereign good pleasure. Why did he do it that way? Because it pleases him to do so. And man comes along and says, well, why does he hold me accountable then? That's not fair. And Paul says, who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? (laughs) Just be thankful that he chose you. Because you don't deserve it and neither do I. His voluntary and vicarious sacrifice on the cross was, according to Ephesians 5, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Colin? On Christ's sacrifice for us and the satisfaction for sin took place in in just the death portion on the cross versus the humiliation, the suffering, the satisfaction took place at death on the cross? Excellent question. And I would say no. Where you're going with that is great. Satisfaction was rendered throughout his life. He suffered the indignities of this world, the temptations of Satan, all of that. It found its culmination in the death on the cross. So, excellent point. So, then a follow up. Why was Christ on the cross, why would that time abbreviate compared to typical crucifixions? Well, he had power to lay down his life, and I suppose because he wanted to get off the tree by sundown, right? They had to get him off the tree. Um, he wanted to die. He had to die. So six hours he suffered, right? Um, at noon, the sun went dark. Um, let me well, go ahead. Who's for? I, don't know. Uh, I was just going to add to that that um, 
a lot of scholars looked at that, and you know, you have um, the Romans were, were surprised that he had passed away uh, because they went to go break his legs and everything. But he suffered the scourge prior to um, the crucifixion, and so that's that's when uh, physical suffering began uh, for him, and that's one of the reasons that some scholars say that he died quicker than, than the others. Yeah, I'm sure that's part of it. You're right, that he suffered tremendous loss of blood and all of that. But again, it's his will that he laid down his life. So he gave up the spirit, remember? That was an active thing, Rob? As far as time, did he not suffer on the cross for eternity? No. I, I'm saying he bore the infinite weight of wrath. So it was the, it's the equivalent of uh, the elect suffering in an eternal punishment. Right. In God's account, and he was, he can make up his own mind, God equated the weight of his suffering to the duration of the sinner's suffering. So Jesus suffered under the infinite weight, the sinner will suffer under the infinite duration. And God says that's equal. I'm willing to accept. The last thing he, he would use to describe his time on the cross, the last word he would use is brief. <laughs> yeah, I mean one second under that infinite right. weight, right. Yeah. But it was temporal. It was temporary on the sure. cross, yeah. Sure. Right. And some people have struggled with that. Wait a minute, if we're to suffer eternally, why didn't Jesus suffer eternally? Well, because God was willing to accept eternal weight for eternal duration. Yeah. <clears throat> we know that God's justice was satisfied because Jesus said it is finished on the cross and then also he rose from the dead. There we have the vindication. Yes, the Father accepted it as a satisfaction. His justice was satisfied. For all the elect, God's justice has been fully satisfied. We're freed from the curse. I am not praying for the world, Jesus said, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Those are the elect. Getting back to, Col I don't know if it was Rob's or Colin's question. Eric? Uh, so in the statement, it is finished. Is that God communicating something to Christ, like the atonement's finished, or is it Christ that's priest saying something about both I think I think that's very insightful and I think I think it's both that as our priest he's finished the work he suffered throughout his humiliation he began to suffer physically as they persecuted him and he finally suffered the infinite weight of God's wrath on the cross as a priest it's finished and as God he's saying it's done that promise that God made in Genesis 3.15 has been accomplished. It's finished. Justice has been satisfied. My people are safe. I've secured their salvation. And when God, when he rose from the dead by his own power, and when the Father raised him from the dead, that was a proof that God had, that his justice had been satisfied and that he accepted the satisfaction in place of his people. There's no reconciliation apart from this. Um, as we said before, it's a faithful high priest in the service of God. So reconciling us with him 
Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So we are reconciled with him and we have peace with God. Our consciences are clean. Our relationship with God is restored. There is peace. No matter what you suffer in this life, you're at peace with God. And you can depart this earth with full confidence that there's no sting in death that it's a blessed portal into the eternal realm, and that you will see Jesus face to face the moment you die and draw your last breath. That's a wonderful thing. As Job expressed his own anguish, he acknowledged the need for a priest. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. So he must be God so that he could endure the infinite divine wrath and satisfy justice and lay his hand upon God and... He must be man because only man should endure the infinite divine wrath as the penalty of justice and lay his hand on man. God, man, bring him together. The arbiter. Job's anguish was satisfied. He's the only one fit for and appointed to this glorious work. He offered himself in his human nature as the once-for-all sacrifice. Interestingly, the Puritans often said something like this. The altar on which the sacrifice of his human nature was offered was his divine nature. That's what gave his sacrifice the efficacy necessary to save us from our sins. Because of the personal union with the divine, that's what gave his sacrifice infinite value and efficacy. You have every reason to trust in that sacrifice. I know whom I believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day, the Apostle Paul. His intercession, uh, his earthly and his heavenly advocacy, an advocate, he pleads his merit on our behalf. The satisfaction establishes the covenant and fulfills its condition. His intercession administers the covenant and fulfills its promises. Where am I I going with this? Well, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul equates this idea that you and I aren't condemned because he's pleading for you and I. The merit of his suffering and obedience is the basis for our enjoyment of his benefits. And he is there declaring his will to have that merit applied by the Spirit to those for whom he died. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. I think more literally, the word desire can be translated one of two ways. Desire or will. I think I could be wrong on this. You can check me if I'm wrong. I think the King Jimmy translates it, I will. Father, I will that they also be with me. And the idea is that it is his will. It is Christ's will as our advocate that the merit of his finished work be imputed to us. It's not as if Jesus is wringing his hands. Oh, Father, please, please, please. No. In the merit of his obedience on earth, Father... According to the covenant that you and I made, I have every right to ask that this merit be applied to them. That's the declaration of his will. 
And his intercession is always effective. There's never once been a declaration or a prayer offered by Jesus that has not been answered. Never. You say to me, well, didn't he pray, remove this cup? Well, remember, he said, thy will be done. That was his prayer. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Shall we keep going? Any questions? Okay. There would be no application of redemption without his intercession. To those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Very important. The elect of God are exiles. We're sanctified by the Spirit. We're purified by the merit and blood of of Jesus, our high priest. And the blood of sacrifices, you remember, was not only shed... It had to be sprinkled upon the people. And that symbolized that the benefits were not only obtained, but they were applied to the offerers. You can have a sacrifice for sins, and it's a wonderful thing. But unless it's applied to you, it makes no difference. It's got to be accomplished and then applied. It's applied by the Spirit through faith. And Jesus is praying that that takes place. The blood of Christ was not only shed at the cross, but is sprinkled to each one of the elect. So unless a person is sanctified by the Spirit, set apart from the rest of the unbelieving world, and sprinkled with Christ's blood, there is no true faith or obedience. Anything you do as an unbeliever is unacceptable to God. It doesn't matter what you do. The purpose for which we are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ is the obedience of faith. The grateful obedience that we offer to him. The gospel is revealed not just to be discussed, but to be by believers embraced and obeyed. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. I'm going to stop there. Any questions? Don? Yeah, you said uh, we descended into hell with uh, Christ. We have not experienced the wrath of hell. Right. And so I don't know that. Yeah. Well, in one sense, you're right. You and I have not experienced personally the wrath of God. But in Christ, in our representative, we have experienced the wrath of God. Just like you and I weren't in the garden. We didn't sin there ourselves. But in Adam, we were in the garden and we did sin. That's why Romans 5.12 says, death spread to all men because all sinned. What? I wasn't even there. Well, in Adam... In God's economy, that's how we set it up. That representative, I was there. I sinned. Therefore, I'm guilty. I'm not just corrupt because my parents gave me corruption. I'm guilty because I sinned. Same way. I suffered on that cross in Christ. I endured the pains of hell. I was in the grave. I rose again. 
and I'm seated with him in the heavenly places right now. It's kind of a hard thing for us to grasp, but this idea of representation, especially for a Jewish mindset, because they're so collectively minded, we're one. The body of Christ. So the head, whatever the head does, the body does. So I don't know if that helps, but that's what it means. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I know it's kind of harsh when I say you've gone to hell, but that's in Christ you have. No, it's just, I sure haven't experienced Right, thankfully. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. We thank you for his once-for-all sacrifice that satisfied divine justice. We thank you for his perfect obedience, which fulfilled all righteousness, and for his ongoing, never-ending intercession by which he's able to save us to the uttermost. Please prepare us now for worship and fill our hearts with joy and gratitude, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.